Our reading this evening is from Romans chapter 15, verses 4 to 13. And that's on page 1141 of the Church Bibles. Romans 15, 4 to 13. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, the, the text we had this evening, because it's um, in, in the church's calendar, this is the Sunday when we particularly think about the Bible. And uh, the text that uh, Fiona read out said, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, that's ours, and through the encouragement of scriptures we might have hope. And the hope is the hope of the second coming, the advent of Christ. And, uh, of course, that's when everything will be perfected. And uh, we have to have faith in that, and we have to endure through the ups and downs of life. But it is the instruction and the encouragement of Scripture that is the basis of that hope. So the question this evening is, why should... A professing Christian obey what the Bible says. And the, the short answer is simply this. To be a Christian means to recognise that Jesus is Lord. And if he's Lord, he has authority over us. And when it comes, therefore, to the Bible, we should take the same view of Scripture as Jesus takes. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? Seems consistent we would be disobedient and inconsistent if we didn't. And yet, in our culture, and it infiltrates the church, and it's the principal reason why churches are divided, is that we don't have a common mind about recognising the authority of Scripture. Our culture is incredibly rugged and individual. You know, the phrase, I can actually hear somebody saying to me, I've heard it said so many times, I'll do what I want, I'll do what I want. You know, usually in that sort of North Kent, South Essex accent that Mark Godfrey and I can perfect. Because um, we come from there, don't we? Um, 
So a little clip here. This is from the House of Fraser, because other people are using Marks and Sparks, John Lewis, and um, the Mulberry adverts. So thought to be fair to them all, and there is no House of Fraser. I don't suppose there's a Mulberry handbag place in Basingstoke. Anyway, it's 90 seconds. You don't own me. But I'm Gerald, and I can always have just what I want. She's the baddest, I would love to flaunt. Take her shopping, you know Eve Saint Laurent. But nope, she ain't with it though. All because she got her own though. Boss, boss, if you don't know, she could never ever be a broke You don't own me. Don't try to change me in any way. You don't own me. Don't tie me down, cause I. Never stay. Don't tell me what to do, and don't tell me what to say. So just let me be myself. That's all I ask of you. I'm young, and I love to be young and free, and I love to be free to live. Catchy, isn't it? Now, obviously, um, it's quite legitimate what she's saying when she's singing about a potential boyfriend. You don't own me. Don't tell me what to say. Don't tell me what to do. But if she is saying it independently of any human relationship, if she's saying it in the total context of life, which I think she is in part, when she says, don't try and change me, I'm free. I love to be free, to live my life the way I want, to say and do whatever I please, well, then she's exercising her personal autonomy in the wrong way. Because the only way you're going to be free is if you live the way in which your maker created you to. You just relate it to any kind of gadget you get given at Christmas. It will come with instructions. If you're like me, boring, try and work it out myself, mess it up. Um, so, you know, if we don't follow the maker's instructions on life, then we will mess up big time. And in fact, the whole purpose of this life since we start messed up is to change, is to surrender our personal so-called freedom to his loving care and direction. And I'd just like to demonstrate this evening um, why that is a perfectly reasonable, in fact, it's the only reasonable Christian thing to do. So let's have a go at uh, answering uh, this. Um, first of all, you know, if you follow, that God has to, uh, so what we do mean and then what we don't mean, and then we look at Christ's attitude to the Bible, and then I'll give you one simple, quick um, application of it. So what we do need, first of all, is we need to be clear on what three words mean. They're the words revelation, inspiration, 
and authority. They're related, but they're distinct. So first of all, God, uh, we need God to reveal himself. And that's the fundamental foundation for authority. The word revelation means unveiled. I always think it's a good idea at a wedding that if the bride has a veil, that the groom makes sure it's lifted before she's at the front. You've got to just check you're getting the right one, don't you really? That's why I get them to look round, you know, in case it's the four o'clock wedding, come early, you know, you never know. So we need to have, um, I do do the latter, I've never suggested the former, but you need to have, um, God has to unveil himself. Job said, can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? No. We can work out something from creation and conscience, but it's pretty limited. Because we're finite, you know, we're little old small us, and because we're fallen, because, you know, we have corrupt motives, we can't work it all out. We require him to unveil himself. Next, of course, that revelation has to be recorded, and that's where the word inspiration comes in. Now, he's revealed himself partly through nature, partly through conscience, conscience, supremely in Christ, but he's also made sure that there's a record, and he's revealed himself through particular people, the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament. And that is in verbal communication, because words are the clearest way that what's in my head can get in your head, and vice versa. Everything else is much more ambiguous. So, God breathes out his word, and through these authors, it is recorded for us. And it's verbal inspiration... Uh, That's how the apostles kind of saw it. Paul said that he was using not words taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit of God. And so such communication that's revealed by God, inspired through uh, human writers, and forms this book for us, that is authoritative. Because behind every uh, word, there is a character, a personality. And behind these words is God's character and personality. And we believe what he says. And yet we do kind of wriggle and uh, we struggle and we make life more difficult for ourselves by questioning, in the wrong sense, what um, he's done. So I should have been flicking these through. Right. So Simon Peter, for example... Um, he learned when Jesus told him to go out onto the Sea of Galilee, to put out into deep water and to let down his nets. Now, he had spent his life being a fisherman. He knew he'd spent all night and he hadn't caught anything. This is going to be a fruitless exercise. He was incredibly reluctant to do what Jesus, who was a carpenter, told him to do. And he rebelled against that suggestion. He protested, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing. But because it was Jesus, and he'd seen his authority at work, he said, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And he caught a whacking great catch of fish. So our claim then is that God has revealed himself by speaking, that this divine God-breathed speech has been written down and presented to us 
uh, in the Bible, in Scripture, and Scripture is in fact God's Word written, which is therefore true and reliable and has divine authority over us. So that's trying to be clear on what we do mean. What we don't mean are um, these things. We don't believe in divine dictation. Uh, Mormonism does, and so does Islam. It wasn't that God sent some kind of email and basically um, the prophets and the apostles just saw, oh, from God, pinged it out to everybody on their mailing list without reading it. It's not that kind of bypassing the brain. No, these writers weren't some kind of uh, audio typist. What they, God did is he revealed to them and they expressed it in their human words, in human culture. But God overruled what they were writing so that he ensured that the right words got written. They do come through their personality. Now, sometimes there is a sense of um, it's given and they record it. So the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, he has a vision and he's recording what he sees in this vision. Um, sometimes the message is passed down to them through angels. But others, particularly the gospel writers, Luke in particular, stress that they've engaged in a bit of historical research. They've interviewed the eyewitnesses, people like Mary, Jesus' mother, some of the other people as well, and they've recorded it in a sensible order so that we can make sense of it. That's what he says to Theophilus. Sometimes he chooses somebody who their life is really um, a living message. So poor old Hosea in the 8th century BC, he, in one sense, was lumbered with the experience of having an unfaithful wife. And it was through that and through what God shows him and gets him to record to convey to Israel how in God's eyes they were an unfaithful people, despite his great covenant love towards them and that they were betraying him. It's quite moving stuff. And you'd also expect when you read it, if the fact that God is using these people to write the right words, but through their personality and culture, for the kind of literary standard to vary. So Peter and John are ordinary fishermen, and their Greek is pretty simple. It's quite easy to translate. If you took the writer to the Hebrews, wherever they are, or even Paul writing in Romans, you know, Paul is a much more sophisticated person. He had the best education going. That's much harder to translate. So it would seem from the kind of internal evidence of Scripture that God made full use of the personality, the temperament, the background and experience of these biblical authors in order to convey through each an appropriate and distinctive message. So then scripture is equally the word of God and the words of men, and that's in fact how it describes itself. It says on the one hand, the mouth of the Lord has spoken, Isaiah. But it's also true that God spoke through his holy prophets, Acts 3.21. Or God spoke through the prophets, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, and men spoke from God, 2 Peter 1.21. So again, the law could be described by one author in a single passage, both as the law of Moses and the law of the Lord. Luke does that in the kind of narratives around the birth of Jesus, chapter 2. So there is a dual authorship 
of Scripture. On the one hand, God spoke, revealing the truth and preserving the human authors from error, and yet without violating their personality. And on the other hand, men spoke using their own faculties freely, and yet without distorting the divine messages. So their words were truly their own words, and yet they were and still are God's words, so that what Scripture says, God says. Now the second thing that we don't mean is whilst all the words which are there are the words God wants to be there, not all the words um, are understood in a literal sense. So context is everything. If you take the book of Job, it's 50 odd chapters long and uh, 47 of those chapters are composed of Job's so-called friends giving him wrong answers to why is God allowing me to suffer so? So if you were to say, thus saith the Lord, after you read anything from those first 47 chapters, yes, they're the words God wants to be written, but he has arranged for the wrong answers to be recorded so that you don't follow them. And we know that because the other five chapters tell us what the right answer to the question of suffering is. The Bible also uses highly figurative language. So in talking about an invisible God, God has to talk about himself in terms from our world, such as the finger of God. You know, if I was being really dramatic, I mean, I could just sort of wave this and point to people and you'd feel uncomfortable if I kind of hovered over you for a minute. Well, well no, 20 seconds would be enough. But of course, we know God doesn't have fingers because he says so. He says, uh, God is spirit, John 4:24. He doesn't have a body, but he uses anthropomorphism. Anthropos is man, morphism is body. So he uses human body language in order to communicate with us. He also uses the language of observation. So... Um, you see, especially in the Psalms, in the poetry there. So in Psalm 19, the son is said to come forth like a bridegroom from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. Then it goes on to say, it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other end. Now that doesn't commit the writer or the reader to a sort of pre-Copernican view of the universe. It's simply the language of observation. I say, I mean, the best scientists in the world would say the sun rises and the sun set, and they know jolly well that it doesn't, but it is the language of observation, and in that sense, it's true. They would be able to give you a scientific explanation as to what, in fact, happens, whereas, of course, um, I know that the sun stands still, and we go round it, and we spin each 24 hours. And the third thing to be clear about is that what the inspired text of Scripture is, is the original text written in Hebrew, a bit of Daniel is in Aramaic, and Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in. And so we say, as originally written. That's implying that we have the autographed copy, the original. Well, we don't. 
but then that's true of any bit of uh, literature, any kind of book we read today that was written 2,000, 3,000 years ago. There are some bits, if people chiseled stuff on cylinders like Cyrus, the Persian king who was around at the time, who helped the Jews get back into um, Israel, you know, his original does still exist. You can go see one of it in uh, the British Museum, but that's very rare. But that shouldn't actually be, oh dear, I must, uh, uh, can't do things like wave my hands around and do this anyway, so um, yeah, right, so if you have a, so it's not, it's not a problem if we, um, so if you were to compare the New Testament with um, other ancient literature writers you may have heard of, Julius Caesar, about his conquest of Gaul, Plato, Sophocles, Homer, I mean, like me, you've probably never read these things, but you've heard about them, although I have actually had to read that. But, um, you know, you think, so you take Homer, right? Well, that's the, well it takes Julius Caesar, I know about him. Um, he, he tells how he kind of conquered our ancestors in Ramsgate a couple of times, and it's all written down in his kind of uh, Gallic Wars. And now he wrote that about 50 BC. So where's him? He's there. Yeah, about 50 BC. And then we have to, so the copies that we have of what he wrote then, are the oldest is a thousand years later, and there are only 10 ancient copies of it. Just compare that. There are 24,000 bits of the New Testament. Some of them could well be between 40 and 90 years later. So if you went to Manchester, to the John Rylands Library, you would find a little bit of uh, John's Gospel, which is dated 120 AD. We don't know exactly when John wrote his Gospel, but probably, um, probably 60 AD. Even if it was later, it would be even better. It would only be 30 years then. But, you know, you're talking about 50 years afterwards. And, in fact, much of the New Testament... Um, there are manuscripts for most of the New Testament... Um, that uh, uh, from 200 AD, and you've got all of the New Testament by 350 AD. What's interesting is that, um, yeah, um, yeah, no, sorry, that um, when, when you deal with some of these other, like Caesar's Gallic Wars, 5% of the, you look at these different manuscripts you've got, and they're not exactly the same, and 5% of the lines are disputed. But when you get all those thousands of bits of the manuscript for the New Testament, you find that only 0.5% are disputed. And what's disputed is usually incredibly minor and of no doctrinal significance. So we can make a pretty bold claim that pretty abs almost certainly we have what these guys wrote. And where we're uncertain is of no great significance. So let's just turn to the grounds on which we base our assurance. And they're simply these. We want to follow Christ's attitude. I haven't got time to do the New Testament. I'll do that in the New Year sometime. But we want to look at what was Christ's attitude to the Old Testament. And when we realize what, he, what his attitude is, that should be our attitude. So first of all, he... Uh, he endorses the authority and he provides for the New Testament. He endorses it in his personal conduct. So when he was being tempted in the desert by the devil, um, each time he matched 
the temptation with an appropriate biblical quotation. Now, he isn't quoting the Bible to the devil. He was quoting scripture to himself with the devil listening. So he was countering in his mind what the devil's words wanted him to do with what God's word wanted him to do. You've probably had that experience. So when the devil offered him the kingdoms of the world, if he would fall down and worship him, Jesus replied to himself, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. For Jesus, these simple words, it stands written, were enough for him. There was no need to question, no need to discuss, no need to argue, no need to negotiate with the devil. The matter had already been settled by Scripture, and Jesus voluntarily, personally submitted as God's Son to the authority of God's Word. That's extremely important. Secondly, Jesus submitted to the Old Testament in his fulfillment of his mission. Now, he seems to have, you know, he didn't kind of get born as a baby, and he had in his head then or what he was meant to be doing. Because to be fully human means you actually have to develop as a human being. So he doesn't sort of come born with it all imprinted in his head. He had to come to realize what his mission was as he grew up. And he does that by reading the Old Testament scriptures. And he realized that he was Isaiah's suffering servant, that he was Daniel's son of man. And so he accepted that he could enter into his glory only by the road of suffering and death. And that explains the sense of necessity that he has. It's a real strong compulsion which constrained him, which focused him. And three times in the Gospels, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, and he must be killed, and after three days rise again. And he uses this word must because scripture says so. He voluntarily and deliberately put himself under its authority. He was determined to fulfill what stood written in his mission. So when Peter tried to prevent Christ's arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane by drawing his sword and he sliced off uh, some guy's ear, Jesus told him to put the sword away. Jesus had no need of human defense. He could have appealed to his father and legions of angels would have appeared to defend him. But why didn't he? Well, the reason he gave is, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Matthew 26. And he was of the same opinion after the resurrection and confirmed it both to the two uh, disciples on the Emmaus Road and to the wider group of followers. He said, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled. What is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And thirdly, he, um, you know, he was always in debate um, with uh, the religious leaders of his day who saw him as a real threat to their um, authority and their privileged way of life. And again, each time for him, Scripture was the final court of appeal. 
He would say, what is written in the law? He would ask, how do you read it? Or he'd say, haven't you read this scripture? And one of his chief criticisms of his contemporaries concerned their disrespect for scripture, even though they were religious people. The Pharisees added to scripture, the Sadducees subtracted from scripture. So to the Pharisees, he said, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own traditions, and thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And to the Sadducees, who denied the supernatural, he said, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? So it's beyond question then that Jesus was himself personally submissive to scripture in his own ethical standards, in his understanding of his mission, and in debate with the Jewish leaders. What the scriptures said were that was decisive for him. Scripture cannot be broken, he affirmed. And again he says, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. There's no example of Jesus ever contradicting the divine origin of the Old Testament scripture. Some people think that he has supposedly done so in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. However, it's not Moses with whom he's at odds when he says that, but the perversions of the, the scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He wasn't at odds with scripture. He was at odds with this kind of oral tradition that filleted the Bible by taking huge chunks out, as the Sadducees did, and by adding a whole lot of stuff that it kind of um, discounted the message written in the Old Testament. So he assented in his mind to the authority of Scripture, and he submitted in his life to the authority of Scripture. If someone claims to follow Christ, is it not inconceivable that they would have a lower view of scripture than he does. And in a couple of minutes, let me just give you an application to uh, how this might work out, to the example of human sexuality. How do we decide what is um, correct behavior? Are there boundaries to sexual expression, for example? How do we decide what is correct behavior? And the answer would be, well, our view should be the view of Christ, shouldn't it? Now, what was that view? Jesus said in uh, Matthew 19, he's saying, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? so that they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So it's really important to notice that he is saying, well actually it's, it's important that he is quoting the Old Testament. He does it in Matthew, Mark and Luke, and he does it twice in two of those Gospels. So for him, this is really important stuff. He rarely has the same thing in all three Gospels. So he's saying from the beginning, he is quoting Genesis 2, 24, 
which is God's intention before the fall, before anything went wrong. And what kind of relationship is he thinking of? Well, he's talking about uh, leaving. So in other words, they're forming a new social unit, so it's public. Hold fast, which literally means to be glued to, so you're stuck in the nicest possible way with your spouse, so it's meant to be permanent. And it is one flesh. There is a unique physical expression for a unique social relationship. And not separate. In other words, the exclusivity is emphasized again. So he's saying the context for sexual expression is in a public, permanent, exclusive relationship that uh, has a unique physical expression. So who's it for? Well, it's for a man and his wife. In other words, it's heterosexual. It's not homosexual, it's not lesbian, it's not bisexual. It's only heterosexual, the context. So it is monogamous, a man and his wife. It's not polyandry, one woman with many husbands, nor is it polygamy, which is one man with many wives, nor is it polyamory, which is kind of like a trio or more of bisexuals. It's none of those things. It is purely and simply heterosexual monogamous. So what we have, as God intended, is that marriage is monogamous, permanent, although there are, in the New Testament, two exceptions to that, which are legitimate, and it's an exclusive heterosexual relationship. All other sexual relationships are excluded as far as Jesus is concerned. So, if that's Jesus' view, what should the view of Jesus' followers be? 